Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. And today, for our 30th episode, we are joined by our esteemed guest, James Stacy, <laughs> who is co-host... Once again. ...of the Grey NATO podcast, a podcast about travel, dining, driving, gear, and most certainly watches, who is... Also, our resident Denny Villeneuve expert and guest. We just love shooting the shit with you, James. So welcome to the podcast again. My guys, you're here for the three feet. I love it. Thank you so much for the invite. Yeah, we appreciate you coming back. Oh, for sure. um, and I do do want to note that TGN, you guys just hit 200 episodes. Yeah, we so did 200. Um, pretty thrilled about it. Just a few it. ahead of us. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we were like you guys. We were um, bi-weekly uh, or bi-monthly. I never get that right. I, I didn't do enough university, but it was... Um, <laughs> you know, we were doing two a month for a long time until the kind of the pandemic kicked off and then we ramped up. But uh, yeah, it just crossed 200 and it's going great. So if uh, yeah, if you're down for any of the any of the, the sort of uh, loose topics that uh, Tay mentioned there, check it out. But otherwise, I'm, I'm, I'm look, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I've arrived. Let's do arrival. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you have arrived. And yeah, I mean, I think this is a great movie for our 30th. Obviously, we love Denny Villeneuve mm -hmm. and we like having you on James. And we are going to a certain point hit Denny movies that I mean, I, I'm pretty sure James hasn't seen a couple that I haven't seen earlier ones. So it's nice to still have you here for ones like this. We're going from last month. We did David Cronenberg a lot about the human condition. I think this is a different angle of that. We're kind of I mean, to put it really um uh painfully we're going from telepods to heptapods how do you feel about that tay <laughs> uh my my intro is kind of ruined already so i i i'm at a loss well i did also just want to mention i am wearing my my self-made arrival shirt i've got some heptapod logograms on this hey. this is from a this is from a uh, a Halloween costume from a couple years ago that I'm I'm very happy I don't have any photos of because then I don't have to consider putting them in the show notes. Where I have this I have this shirt that I drew logograms onto and then I wore I wore a black toque with seven black socks stuffed and hung off sure. of it, and I had to explain it to every single person at the party. So you know it's a great costume. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have um, I have know. some logograms that were accidentally left on my coffee table when people didn't use coasters. Yeah. yeah, I think we've all got a few of those. You just hope they're not one of the ones that means death mm, or yeah, death I process. Can't, I can't read it. I need more time, yeah. more time to study no, that, it. That's the one you get tattooed on you, death process. <laughs> death, I, yeah, exactly. Abbott is death process for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, to, to dive right into it, we're trying in this season to be a little bit better to get our paperwork out of the way. So if you haven't watched Arrival yet, which is uh, which is wild that you'd listen to this first, but you do you. Uh, Arrival is about when 12 alien ships appear on Earth, a linguist must determine how to communicate with the visitors before more paranoid and violent ambassadors of the human race take action. Starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner and directed by Denis Villeneuve, Arrival was released September 2nd, 2016. Canadians can stream it on Crave. Um, and I mean, for Denny's first uh, out and out sci-fi movie, I'd say outside of I know some of his earlier ones are kind of um, they're like non-temporal and they're they're more fantastical. But I'd say for his first direct sci-fi, he did really well. He had a forty-seven million dollar budget and uh, got a two hundred three point four million dollar return. Well, you know, a good cast and kind of a good hype train behind this movie, I think, really helped. I don't know how he got the 
you know, like the advertising they did for Arrival, but I remember it was like the big movie of the month when it came out, or at least it was something that people were very interested in seeing pretty widespread. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sure either. Like I, I also remember it being a big deal because I think at the time I wasn't 100% locked in on, you know, paying attention to Denny and what he was doing, but I remember being really hooked by the idea of this movie. Um, and I mean... Honestly, we're talking a lot about the marketing campaign. I got to say, this is a bit of a disappointing tagline to this movie. Yeah. It's just, why are they here? It's, it's straightness to the point, which is certainly effective, but I feel it's lacking some grace uh, I feel like it, need, some it, grace it needs or a little bit panache. more like uh, uh, True Detective Season 1. Like t- Time is a flat circle. Yeah. Right? It's, <laughs> There's definitely an overlap between the two. It's a wild thing. And in terms of timing, like let's keep in mind that the, the last two potlucks, which I've been uh, more than fortunate to be on, uh, featured Blade Runner and Sicario, and that's 2017 and 2018. So we're talking about a real run here uh, for, yeah. our, for Sicario, our boy Sicario was just before this. Sicario was 2015. Oh, I have a dead wrong. Okay, so we're 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 it's right 15, we're 16, right in the 17, middle. Then. Yeah, yeah, we're right in the middle. We did Sicario. Now we're doing Arrival, and we did Blade Runner first, and that's sort of his three. Um, Arrival sort of kicks off what is now a run of sci-fi stuff mm-hmm. adapted from beloved sci-fi source material um leading up to you see you go blade or blade runner uh dune he's in the process of making dune 2 it just started filming i think yesterday or the day before as of recording date yeah and then uh he also announced uh that he's doing rendezvous with rama which is a great story by arthur c Clarke. absolutely yeah uh when, when i saw that i was like i don't i don't know that story so i'll go check it out and it's awesome yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean the other the other thing that i would bring up uh, immediately is if you have seen the movie and you want to even more so enjoy this episode, go ahead and go back and read Ted Chang's uh, story, uh, The Story of Your Life. I think, uh, I think mm-hmm. it's, it, it gave me a different appreciation for the, the background on this, on this one. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 we don't have to belabor the point necessarily, but uh, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't read basically both of his uh, short story anthologies. Uh, but mm-hmm. even just start on this one and you'll see where some of the beauty and the like... I don't know what the word for it. What what would the it's like there, there there's so much about this movie that feels like it's right on your fingertips. Like a very personal. Mm-hmm. It's the way that they filmed the like close rack of her and her daughter and mm-hmm. in in the flashbacks it feels um it feels like a memory a lot of the movie yeah, and that's yes. it, they're super smart about the way that they intercut and the the speed it we'll get to this especially with um with my scene which we'll, which will do last um the speed at which or the way they layer the cuts between current day in the film or say 18 months or th- theoretically what about seven years seven eight years in the future mm-hmm. it's um it's a, a yeah. really interesting treatment but um i think that you can see the kernel of that in the original uh, source material from Ch- ted chiang have you guys yeah, both I, read I, that I, yeah okay yeah, we're so we're, i'm in the dark big, on we've, that. we've we've been passing around these short story collections for a couple years now it was ever like i i didn't read it prior to seeing arrival it was more of the Saw Arrival, wanted to read the thing, found that. And then pretty close after that time, uh, Chiang put out his second set of stories, which I'd say, I'd say are even better. Yep. Agreed. Um, which, is very, which is impressive. And, I mean, uh, I was talking about this with my, with my housemate, but it's actually, like, it's a phenomenal adaptation because there's a lot of differences. I think, I think the screenwriter, um, one second, let me scroll back up, uh, Heiserer, Eric Heiser and uh, and Denny saw the potential for this 
story to say a lot and use a lot about the cinematic language, something that could only exist there. So there are a lot of differences. And I mean, to, to underline that, Chiang approved of the film. He said, I think it's the rarest of the rare in that it's both a good movie and a good adaptation. When you consider the track record of adaptations of written science fiction, that's literally a miracle. It's rough. Or almost yeah. literally a miracle. Yeah. So I think I think he's right on that. I, I think you butchered that name, but I do think oh, that Eric Heisier, <laughs> Heisier, yeah. however you say it, did a great <laughs> Sorry, job <Eric>. adapting this. <laughs> <laughs> because you don't get praise like that. For sure. And and in, in, in my mind, what's interesting is I think it, in that run of sci-fi with Arrival, that we talked about just a, a couple minutes ago. I think the interesting thing is this is the most delicate, um, out of genre take on sci-fi that he's dealt mm-hmm. with so far. I mean, Dune is a classic. It's it's arguably uh, a, a book of the Bible as far as it goes, <laughs> right? And Blade Runner, uh, t- almost to no lesser extent, it feels the same yeah. way, right? But uh, in the cinematic canon, right? And then with Arrival, you have this. Um, it's a story of a family. It's a story of um, of science over aggression, science over violence, science over war, um, of of understanding of what it is to mm-hmm. speak to somebody rather than fight them. And I think that it's a core tenant, and I think they actually might speak to that tenant better in the film than they do in the uh, original story. And mm-hmm. and I think it's... um. It's a piece of sci-fi that I recommend to a lot of people who don't want to watch laser guns or spaceships yeah. or mm-hmm. guys with um, you know lightsabers or, or whatever it may be. And I'm not, I'm not denigrating any of that. Sci-fi should be everything. It, it can be mm-hmm. all genres in one, just not now, I think. And, and I think what's interesting about Arrival is it's now showing you something. And, and to watch it again, looking back after the pandemic on the responses from the global audience to what's happening, the spray painting, the riots, the rest of it, uh, it, mm-hmm. it took on a little bit of a new meaning for me as well. And, and obviously, and, and, you know, the first time I went through this, I did, I, um, I was very new to being a father and didn't really understand the weight of some of the stuff they're talking about. And it hit me way differently uh, going through it this time around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think what you're saying about it, it's sort of the space it occupies as an alien movie. I think it's very aware of that. I love that early in the movie, um, Renner's uh, character, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the characters, Ian. Ian. Yeah, Ian is reading her forward to her book, and he's, right on the he mentions what, what she wrote. Yeah, you saying, um, you know, language is the first weapon drawn. And so I think this movie's very aware that most alien movies are a matter of military power or a secret plan or finding the one weakness in their defense and wanting to be something completely different. And the other thing I want to touch on, you, you brought up earlier, James Strang, that this movie has a real tactile feel. It's right at your fingertips. And I think that's a combination of Villeneuve cinematographer Bradford Young mm. and the editor, who let me scroll up again, Joe Walker, of, of course. Of course it's Joe Walker. <laughs> of course it's Joe Walker. Uh, the, the, the three of them creating this movie that's very locked in Louise's perspective, either through use of, I mean, in your scene, we'll talk about extremely shallow depth of focus that keeps just Louise and whoever she's speaking to in focus. Yeah. Um, the way that it's edited around what she's looking at and and what she's using and the way that it understands how to manipulate the way that we see a movie, especially like the, uh, tell me, the Kuleshov effect. Yep. Yeah. 
uh, I think it's the the those three creators really making this movie that locks you into one person's perspective, which is necessary for the story and the plot itself. But you're right, it makes this movie that feels very personal, where you can very seamlessly step through the screen and occupy her position and and feel what she feels and see what she sees. Personal yeah. without feeling small, right? I think is a really important thing mm-hmm. to state about this movie because you can have small minimalist science fiction films that don't even really delve into big universes or grander like grand themes like language um but i think that denny has kind of found a niche in contemplative science fiction of some Mm -hmm. kind like Mm -hmm. i don't think dune as much as dune and blade runner are uh absolute canon for all science fiction foundational if you want to say but they are both unique and science fiction as well in a sense because they are both in this realm of contemplative science fiction where it's not so much about the action sequences it is much more about the greater meaning of what a new world and what futuristic possibilities bring to humanity and i see that as part of like they root this film immediately in academia and and they never leave that point the 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 military element um which of course is is kind of it's forrest whitaker it's uh, colonel weber um it is kind of an assault on the way that Louise sees the world and they don't allow the camera to shift away from her perspective. Not everything is a fight. We'll get to this. Not everything is a weapon. Not everything mm-hmm. is an assault. Right. And, and I think it's an interesting perspective on North American peacekeeping strategies for sure. But even beyond that, like just the idea that, um, that, there are there are like many different ways to look at a, at the same storyline, and in this one, like you said, Tay, like they they stick so closely to her perspective. In that, the few times that they really show you something that she's not seeing firsthand, it almost feels mm-hmm. jarring. It is, and they, yeah. they they give you a little bit of safety with the use of like wide angles, a whole room of people, yeah. a whole room of her students, uh, mm-hmm. everyone from her from the classes at the university leaving uh, with the the foreground of the security officer, that kind of thing. The visuals like give you some feeling of safety, so that you never actually feel like the 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 aliens, like the heptapods, are actually going to attack. I think if they did in this movie, this would have I been agree. a huge surprise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think like yeah, the only major departure from her perspective is that soldier who's on the base mm-hmm. who sort of takes takes matters into his own hands. And you're right, oh, and the I think, CIA agent. Uh, yeah, um, uh, Stolbark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, just a. a phenomenal actor mm-hmm. but um yeah. no i think i think you're right like if we were to go back i didn't i didn't look at it with this eye but going back i think you could see that two or three scenes with that soldier where he's talking to his wife and then he's he's sort of prepping his plan with the other two soldiers um they are more drawn back they're probably shot a little bit differently i think that was all very intentional and i mean on the cinematography villeneuve it said that he wanted the movie to have strong roots in realism. He wanted a cinematographer who would not be afraid to deal with intimacy. And I think like he, he absolutely chose the right person for that, and they knocked it out of the park. They hit those goals precisely. Yeah. Um, Along with uh, like a pretty substantiated use of, of natural lighting or uh, in-scene lighting, like the weird lighting in the, these military tents or just mm-hmm. outside yeah. at dusk. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff at dusk, or I guess it could be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a yeah, it's a it's a gray blue movie with the exception of the other time period yep. where they very specifically give it this warm Hyper-warm. tone so that they just it, it's an immediate way to know that 
oh yeah we're we're um we're in a different period right it's it's a great shorthand and i mean even like young stated that um you know he was trying to figure out how to light these things and at at the beginning he tried to pull back on how cold he made the let's call them present day scenes and uh and denny told him like no don't be worried about skin tone and stuff like that you can let amy adam be pasty let her exist in that melancholy space let us feel it visually for sure i think they're all great choices She's incredible, by the way. We're going to get into... The, she's in every scene, so like we're, we'll talk to her yeah. about, uh, about her a lot, but she's... Um, I, I think this is her best role. I think she's I, so I think good she, in it. I think she is a, um, a a shockingly understated actor. There, I've never seen her do something super showy. I, I don't feel like. like and, and she's worked very consistently. Like There are some movies I've only seen once, like American Hustle, Nocturnal Animals. Yeah, I feel like that I'm one's sure a bit showy. More, there's some more drama in them. And Nocturnal but, Animals I mean, most is pretty. Uh, she's pretty good in that movie. too. That's that's just an insane <laughs> movie. I can't I can't believe people made that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that Tom Ford? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, I think I think most of the time, like you can really count on her to come in here and give a measured performance that isn't trying. None of it ever feels like going for an award or something like that. Except for American Hustle. Oh yeah. <laughs> you got you got to compete with Christian Bale, right? Yeah, I'm sure he, he just makes everybody the want their own Oscar for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think I think before before we dive into scenes and stuff like that, also worth uh, talking about uh, Johan Johansson, who again yeah. uh, he he did Sicario's music. Um, he was in the talks to do Blade Runner 2049 for a while, and they, they, they opted for something different. And he, of course, uh, he passed away a few years ago, so as always, R.I.P. Johansson, a huge loss to the uh, cinematic film space. Um, but uh, one thing to note, like, I, I think it's a really cool uh, score for this. It uses a lot of, like, phenomes and, and non-actual language and vocal parts and uh and involves a lot of stuff there's a great um he was in way back when song exploder was just starting to be a thing the podcast where the guy sort of breaks down one song um he did a he did an episode with johansson and on arrivals music so i'll link in the show notes about 15 minutes where he walks through the heptapod b piece um but I, I think there are a couple of things from that episode I wanted to bring up. He said he wanted to use human voices, but he didn't want to use a choir because he didn't want it to feel like 2001 um, uh, or any sort of instance of human voices being used for sci-fi before. Um, and the other thing is that uh, he, 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 uh, he wanted to use a, uh, a concept in music writing known as um, aleatoricism, which is essentially using... Uh, chance and luck in music so you can you give all the people performing on a piece what they're going to do but you could say for example tell them start whenever you want finish whenever you want right there's we're not going to conduct you in or conduct you out so it it incorporates this sort of uncertainty and unpredictability and i like that as an idea in the music reflecting some of the themes themes of the movie because obviously looking back on your fully recorded piece you have it in a superposition you know where all the things lie but when they were making it they didn't and i think that that's a nice little sort of hint towards the perspective that louise gains by the end of the movie going into cool. the movie yeah. you don't know what's going to happen when you look back on a complete piece you know where everything falls you know we're analyzing it we're taking notes to this extent 
that's the same way Louise could look back on her life once she gains that full perspective. Um, so whether that was entirely intentional, I mean, aleatoricism is often used in music just to make it feel um, uh, extraordinary or not sound like other things. But I, I think there's a nice sort of line you can draw between the two there. So would that be similar to kind of the score he used for Asandi or even Dune? Um, I mean, Dune, Dune with Zimmer, I know, was a completely different thing. He just wanted to make it sound like nothing, none of it was made on Earth, right? Yes. So he tried yeah. to, he tried to just make it for a completely different culture, which, I mean, I won't go into huge tangent, but they tried to do that for Avatar too, and I'd say it's one of the biggest losses to our, <laughs> to our understanding of film music is that apparently when making the music for avatar they did make entirely new sounds and new scale structures and all this wild stuff and then james cameron listened to it and he's like well that doesn't sound like music and he scrapped it and they did conventional music um so i think it would have been really cool and i think you know johansson's doing a version of that zimmer's doing a version of that with dune as well okay avatar's done <laughs> This is what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, we already dunked on the way of water back in our. We, we, uh, we did Bigelow. We did um, Point Break. Oh, yeah, of course, yes, yes, yes. Uh, to talk, course, to, yes, to yes, talk okay. about Cameron. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So we won't. Those, movie, we those won't movies are tell. two and a half hour tech demos for Nvidia processors. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Ever since Catherine Bigelow did Point Break, he just couldn't get away from the water. Yeah, he could. He just keep coming back. Um, we, yeah, I mean, what what else did you guys want to touch on before we before we hopped into our scenes? I, I think it like it, again, it's, on it, the this editing, is sci-fi maybe? with with so little violence. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. the violence oh. is implied. It's possible. It has like a Hitchcockian value where it's in the background the whole time. There's no mm-hmm. laser beams. There's like there's spaceships, but they don't they don't even like they're just beans that kind of float above what's supposed to be Montana. It's actually Quebec. Um, yeah. You know, I, I remember seeing it in theaters and not getting fifty percent of the nuance that I that I got the second time. Mm-hmm. The, the, was, the 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 perfection of the editing in explaining the time stuff is so subtle and so well done. And and I really, if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I still haven't listened to it, or I haven't watched the movie, but I'll I'll give this a chance. Like, please, just watch the movie. Watch it like two three times and then come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It does reward multiple viewings, which is something that I say usually about only great movies. Uh, in the sense mm-hmm. that you gain something almost every time you watch it. Not just the second time or third time, but almost every time you can pick up more and more pieces to the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, I don't find it to be an overly complicated nope, just uh, message. Just a lot mm-hmm. of subtlety. And I think that it does a very good job of explaining a lot of what you need to get through the film, but allows like the deeper dives if you watch mm-hmm. it more that kind of yep. thing and that that's all good signs uh, or signs of a good movie and signs of what denis does in his films too because he's surface level very intelligent director in terms of communicating what he needs to to get the movie to audiences but then mm-hmm. if you are some if you're a film nut you can dive really deep into his films and see so much more that he does intend for you to see Unless you're um, Rex Reed of the New York Observer, not a fan. Yeah, he uh, he he gave it one out of four. <laughs> uh, called it the latest exercise in pretentious poopery. Poopery. I'm not sure that would have passed my editor, but okay. The, they uh, haven't written a good review in the New York Observer in like 40 years. 
My my only note for this is uh, apparently he was quite critical in its lack of action. I, I actually think this this film is it, it just the action isn't linear, much like the story isn't isn't told in a linear fashion. I think this movie actually moves pretty quickly. Uh, well, the action is physical. My, my notice junk take. <laughs> yeah, sounds like Rex missed the point. Yeah, no. Well, it sounds the, like Rex uh, was having like, a bad day. This movie takes some empathy. Yes. Yeah, seriously. I remember film film Twitter for a little while was sort of going in on Denny. They're calling him, I want to say it was something like the empty room director. And I think they were speaking to the composition <laughs> of his frames, though. how slow stuff is. I'm like I like all of it. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would say it's a bad thing. Like I just I think if you if you say he's the empty room director and you think that's that's a that's a slam, I don't think you're paying attention. Yeah, I think I don't you're know. just you're very surface level. Again on movies that I don't think any of his movies are super complex or difficult to get. I think they're they always have a clear. I think this one might be the most cerebral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Well, I think in terms uh, as far of, as of Tim's the, argument, of the modern big ones. Sorry. As far as Tim's argument about complexity, I think Enemy is quite a complex film. And yeah, was that that was oh, why yeah. I tempered my statement. I will, no, that's that's fair. Enemy. <laughs> I agree with you for the most Enemy, part. Enemy. I think I think I think we'll we'll get into Enemy probably in in forty, fifty, or sixty. Um. And we'll talk about it. that one. It it kind of occupies its own space, or it does feel like Denny doing a, a big indie movie with just a script that makes you go, "Okay, I need to take notes, and I need to map this out, and I need to I need to pay attention to everything." Yeah, but as a tricky other watch. than en- <laughs> yeah, enemies, enemies uh, stands alone. Absolutely, and and that's those are my two movies where I've I've um I've been in the same room slash had an experience with uh, the lead uh, actresses. In that oh. case, I had I yes. had dinner with Sarah That's Gaddon right. several years ago. Uh, she did not want to talk about um, Denny Villeneuve <laughs> or Enemy <laughs> so much. Uh, uh, through the watch world, she was, she's uh, she may remain an ambassador for a brand called Gigi Lacolle. And then, uh, no uh, way. maybe even two years before that, I'd have to dig back in the year. I, I once covered a um, a press junket for what's called the Behind the Scenes Award, which is like where Hamilton watches essentially gives awards to cinematography and camera work and and sound editing like people who are behind the camera and they do a fairly big event it's actually gotten quite a bit bigger even since i was there in let's call it 50, 2015 2016 something like that maybe okay. even a little earlier and uh and amy adams was there and i was getting a drink from the bar and i turned around and she was i, I was moving too quickly and she was too close behind me and i almost bowled her over and uh, and she said something like hi, and I was like, no, nah, I don't think so, and I just walked away. <laughs> it's too scary. <laughs> but that that extent, well, there you I, go. Think those are, I think that's my my entire run of uh, of uh, you know women who have been in Denny Villeneuve movies that I, I've Man. been in the same yeah. space as. If I, I can add to the list someday, to, maybe I will. Would have loved to ask Sarah Gadon about uh, antiviral. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, if, absolutely. if she didn't want to talk about Denny, maybe she want to talk about Cronenberg. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. uh, we stuck. We stuck to watch. She like, talked about, about a bunch about yeah. yoga, if I remember correctly. Yeah. By all accounts, Denny seems like one of the nicest people to have on set. I'm not sure I would. Well, and like we talked about David Cronenberg being such a collaborator, I'm not sure about his son. He, honestly, I, I've seen some behind the scenes videos from Possessor. He seems like a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, a weirdo who we want on the show at some point, though. A hundred percent. Like I, I don't mean weirdo is a bad thing. Let's 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 be clear. Like by all means, be a weirdo if you can make movies like Antiviral and Possessor. We're way off topic. Is it time to jump into your scene, Tay? Uh, why not? Yeah, I think we can. The other stuff we want to talk about, they'll all come up in our scenes. Sure. He is a potluck after all, so we each get to do a scene this time. That's right. So, 
Uh, we're going to do our scenes in a linear fashion as per usual. So my scene just happened to come first. Uh, so my scene takes place from 23.30 to 33 minutes into the film. And yes, my time code is that clean. That is when the scene cuts. Tidy. Um, I know. So I, when I when I timed that out, I was like, that's just beautiful. Nine and a half minutes. You love to see it. Yep, love to see it. And <laughs> in this scene, almost immediately after arriving at base, Louise and Ian are rushed in to prepare to visit the alien spacecraft. They are driven over in anticipation mounts as they prepare to enter the vessel. And that's pretty much the summary without diving into any detail. Um, mm -hmm. The noteworthy things about this scene and kind of why I picked it, there's a few big kind of t talking points that I want to get over, go over. First of all, I got to say Bradford Young cinematography is my favorite in this scene. The buildup from driving to the spaceship and there's just something special about his timing and pacing. And I know that comes down to Joe Walker's editing too. But the way that the cinematography kind of moves us forward while letting us stay very contemplative is something I really want to dive into with you guys. So that's a big part of it. Um, there are a lot of really cool and well-executed expository elements in the scene as well. So setup for the rest of the movie takes place in this scene and it's done in a very subtle way throughout a lot of just audio voiceovers that are kind of giving us clues as to what's about to happen and that sets up the scene really nice um, and then we also have some really cool character moments there's a really great moment where uh ian who is i don't what kind of scientist is he is he a physicist he's a physicist yeah, yeah. and he gets to touch the spacecraft with his glove on and it's a really beautiful mm -hmm. i love that moment it's beautiful and then Louise has a whole different set of emotions going in as well. And then I also want to get to the science fiction elements because the way they do something that would seemingly be very, be very conventional in most science fiction films is just done in such a cool way here. So mm -hmm. um, I'm going to open the floor to you guys. Uh, if you guys have anything specific that stands out to you about the scene. Why, I, in general, I'd like to just speak to how patient this movie is. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, you do say in your description that they sort of rush them in, and you're right. It's such a high priority for the military. They have to meet this schedule. You mentioned the exposition. They kind of, there's a lot of exposition, and they do say, like, oh, the shell opens every 18 hours. So, like, they, they are on a schedule. Um, and they show you sort of the process of all these things. But the movie is, as a whole is so careful in how in when it reveals more things to you and then what it shows you after something's been revealed so i mean at nine minutes and 30 seconds in the movie is the first time you see the shell but it's low quality and it's on the venezuelan news and then it's 18 minutes and 20 seconds where you actually see the shell um, wow. for the first time in montana but actually um uh quebec uh where it was filmed and then and then it's not until your scene where you get an even closer to it i do love that like they don't show you the shell for so long. They don't show you the heptapods for so long till the very end of the scene. You sort of get a first glimpse of them. And then once you do see them, the shell is sort of ever present. It just keeps being in the back of scenes. They have so many outdoor sequences in, in Montana where you just, the shell is always sort of bisecting the frame or it's dipping into the frame and things like that. But I love how patient it is in not just being like, well, let's just jump to our aerial shots. Let's jump to news footage. And I think this scene too, the scene teaches you that you're going to see things in detail because they're so careful about, you see them getting suited up, driven over there. They show you both 
movements of the scissor lift, mm-hmm. both going up and then repositioning. This scene is so methodical, and you're like, I'm going to see so much of these aliens, yeah. and then it yeah. doesn't give it to you at all. Yeah, <laughs> Which I, is I also the, the big point. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think the other thing it does really nicely is, again, it's science. It's like science and academia forward, where... Mm-hmm. They're coming in, and other 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 things have happened. Obviously, the military is everywhere here. All you can hear is helicopters, occasionally a jet or a couple rip brought, a rip by. You know, there's several sequences in this movie where you can hear a tank but not see it. It's just they, they give you this din of the oppression of military, and in the middle of it, you have a physicist and a linguist who are the, essentially the, the film's uh, heroes, but also the tragedy of the film happens between them. And, and, and I think it's an interesting thing to see them, um, to, to, to watch this movie happen in front of them. And, and like Tim was saying, this is a very patient movie, but it's also a movie that like really flaunts the fact that it takes certain um, tropes from science fiction and from um, uh, world invasion movies and just kind of reverses them or, or, or refutes them entirely. You know, the, when we get to um, my shout out, I've got, I've got one in there. There's a few things where they do things that are in every movie that are in friggin' Armageddon and, and, and like stuff that you Stargate. exactly that you yeah. wouldn't connect. And then, and then they do it and they go, but this is, this is kind of like maybe how it would actually happen if people weren't, you know, uh, you know, reading cocaine dialogue and the rest of it. And, and, and I think that, I think that this this movie does a really uh, good job of always keeping the touch very light, but keeping some tension there at the same time. It kind of balances the two, and and the sequence where they're approaching the unknown, I, th- I think, really sets up what I, what I see as our three scenes kind of operating almost like the um, the sort of um, uh, pledge uh, turn and and prestige for this film. And prestige. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So there is a lot of awesome setup in terms of how the scene is going to unfold and you get all this kind of dialogue at the beginning that tells you how the scene's going to operate what kind of radiation exposure are we walking into nominal these are just for safety so is there any physical contact with him am i the only one having trouble saying uh, aliens there's a wall like a glass wall you can't get to them which just builds more tension because the scene takes so long to actually get to that point, which is why mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting scene from a construction standpoint, because right off the bat, we're blasted with information. We have dialogue coming in from uh, Colonel Weber introducing uh, Louise as uh, the new head of this group. Good morning. This is Dr. Louise Banks. She'll be heading your team. Dr. Banks. It's a pleasure. Dr. Man. Banks is taking over the mission from Dr. Walker. And he, he quickly... It, and it, this person's never mentioned again to be quickly says taking over for Mr. Walker, uh, who we can just assume was is the person who is referenced later when Louise says, Am I fired? You're better than the last guy. That doesn't make me feel any better. And so that is, <laughs> yeah. who I'm guessing, is that person. And it's so simple as just leaving it vague where yep. they're like, well, some people just can't can't handle like what happens in there. However, they term it where you're like, wait, what? And then they're also like, so what is it? You'll see soon enough. Hurry up. Sometimes it's just that simple. It doesn't need to be any more than that where you're like, yeah, I mean, if I was one of the military like controllers or like someone managing that situation, I wouldn't bother being like, oh, well, they're a squid. They have seven (laughs) knuckles and like seven tentacles and the tentacles split and like, right. It's just kind of like you'll the whole point is that you'll see. And they're just telling the audience, you'll see. And then you don't see. Yeah, it almost feels like Ian feels weird asking that question in the moment. He almost doesn't expect mm-hmm. an answer. It's like a rhetorical, what do they even look like? Kind of yeah. moment. 
and uh, they and then explain to Louise that they'll be exchanging information through glass, and that's how the interaction mm-hmm. takes place. So you have like this image in your head built up of how what's going to happen with the characters, and then it takes nine minutes to get to there. <laughs> so you have a lot of anticipation built up in this really cool voyage to the ship, which I think the distance between the camp and the spaceship is really cool too. Just like the practicality mm-hmm. and the realism of the scenario. Yes, the base is like five kilometers away, but you only get the sense of that based on like the scale of the ship. Uh, so mm-hmm. all these things kind of work in tandem to create this really cool setup of jumping in the trucks and getting from the base to the ship, um, which, like I said, is all really emphasized by Bradford Young's cinematography and Johan Johansson's score really work in tandem well to kind of have that nice pace and build up. And you have the characters experiencing very different emotions until they get there. Yeah, I love that you get the A and B of Louise and sort of her anxiety and stress, which I, I can definitely, I like that I think I can see myself in both of their reactions. Yeah. I would love to think that I would be kind of chuckling and kind of kind of amazed, which is what you get from Ian throughout the, the process. But I could also see that like the gravity of the situation would maybe give me a panic attack, which Louise seems so close to getting. And it's not until Weber just kind of like, I'm going to make this happen for you, right? And he throws her um, into the into the the tunnel, which becomes a hallway when gravity changes. Yes. And maybe we can get into that really quick, because that is just... When I mention the science fiction elements of the scene, that's like the big takeaway, is that it's I like how the lift operates and it sends them up into the hole under the ship. But then mm-hmm. when they throw the glow stick up... Yeah, that just happened. I remember that first reaction was just like, "What? What's gonna happen it's, here?" Yeah, it's very again, cool. it's 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 simpler, mm-hmm. right? It's not one of the soldiers like showing off and being like, "Look how easy it is," right? And like jumping up and changing just that that glow stick and the the camera uh, tilts yeah. right up, right? There's no cut in there's it. There's also I no think dialogue. It's, so it's just the throwing of the glow stick, and then they talk mm-hmm. after. It's there's but there's no like watch this or anything like that it's just he throws the glow stick up it's very simple and you see it interact as if it the gravity has just flipped 90 degrees mm-hmm. um, i do want to point out that uh forrest whitaker has a particularly great face for those that in mask illumination yes it really like makes his eye extra shaded like and I, 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 that guy just delivers oh, every, like every time. Every time. Every yeah. time. You have to <laughs> so dependable. really be careful with how you cast him because he's almost too epic for some roles. Like he's like too mm. much character for yeah. some roles I find. Mm. But in this, I think he's used to the right degree. They don't, he's not like in the movie a ton and he creates a nice antithesis to what they are doing. Um, or at least like a roadblock kind of to what they're doing throughout the film. I just love the yeah, idea that the that ghost dog became a colonel later in life. <laughs> that makes me happy. <laughs> no, I just I, I yeah. kid though. The dude's incredible. Like yeah. I love yeah. seeing we him get... in movies. I think this is to to your point, Tay. Like it's perfect casting, and then on top of that, it's perfect usage. It's one thing to get the right person in the role. It's another thing to keep them attenuated so that their spikes mm-hmm. of energy or their lack make sense for the space. And he really works well in a physical space with amy adams like whether even in a field like where there's there's jets and and people running around and tanks and 
trucks being sprayed off by you know biochemical stuff and like he he can deliver a line while like turning away from a helicopter really well uh i i like it a lot i'm i'm, I'm a big fan it's kind of like there there's those things in movies where like a visual thing will just stick in your brain and stuff like that and one of the ones for this movie is when he points out the helicopter headphones to her i can i can picture that with total clarity <laughs> how he points to them i'm like an actor just makes a choice like that and it just really yeah. it, it really just locks into your brain and yeah i think he's got that career general business forward thing down in this and i mean we can talk more about it it's going to be in one of our shout outs yeah. but i i think he does his best work right at the beginning but uh, i agree we, yeah, yeah. we we can stick in tay's scene <laughs> well i don't have too much more i wanted to cover um i did want to just mention kind of how the ending operates because like i said there's a ton of build-up and you're kind of left with these characters feeling all these emotions as they get to the spacecraft they go up very slowly. They experience this really cool science fiction moment of gravity turning 90 degrees on them where they have to jump from the lift. It's like a leap of faith kind of moment, but it's like scaled down, which is really cool. It's mm. like a, a small moment of triumph at this point in the scene. And then fear just really starts mounting as they approach the end of this tunnel where they know they're going to see these extraterrestrials. And Louise's face is just mortified as they get to the end of the tunnel. Um, the only other thing I want to talk about before I get to the end of the scene is just how you get really cool uh, visuals of how the space is going to be set up. We get the first kind of uh, cutaway to the cameraman, the guy who's going to mm -hmm. be a major player later in the film. But this is the first time we kind of see him setting up his camera. And then there's also a really intimate shot of them setting down the canary or whatever that bird is in the cage yeah um, yep. essentially operating as the canary in the coal mine testing if there is actually mm -hmm. oxygen and breathable air in this space which once again it's good setup it's good execution and it's really cool world building in the science fiction world that doesn't need any further explanation than that and i like the ambience that the bird also adds through all the scenes in that chamber room uh, where you just hear it occasionally chirping and you know that yeah. there's still oxygen in there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. We talk about this all the time, but it's very careful in giving you all the elements in this drawn-out sequence. Again, it's it's just under 10, 10 minutes or just over. And so that every following sequence, we already know it's all there. There's nothing else that has to be discovered beyond the the points of each of those scenes, like, getting more language or you know the interactions between louise and ian and abbott and costello and that is kind of why i find it interesting that the scene ends so abruptly because it almost is like okay we've explained all, we've done all the exposition we need so now you can get through the rest of the movie and we're going to end this scene before you get too invested in what's about to happen um and mm -hmm. it also cuts off like because of the character moment louise has just had this ordeal getting to this moment and then she's told now you can get started Dr. Max, you can start. and then the scene cuts away as soon as really she sees the two forms of the heptapods enter the space and mm -hmm. the fact that it cuts there is just so brilliant yeah yeah, I think it works on a number of levels. Number, Yeah, you've got like the meta textual idea of beginnings and endings, right? The movie starts with her saying, this is this is your story. And you assume it's the end of this little girl's life. It's right at the beginning. There's constant little in sort of jokes like that. Just like this scene ends with you can start now, right? 
in terms of us as audience members, I think cinematic language is telling us in this scene that we're going to get a really long sequence with the aliens. We're going to get close-ups on their bodies and their structure and how they move and things like that. And then that's all just like undercut and and not given to us right then. But then on a character level too, I think it makes a ton of sense that nothing concrete is going to be achieved in this first session. They just have to meet each other. And and it just hard cuts to her being like, Am I fired? You're better than the last guy. Yeah. I, I also think like you have to pay tribute to, it's not just alien movies or whatever, but also monster movies, just the reveal of the monster. Right? Like what we got in this one mm. was the fin breaking the water in Jaws. Nothing more, yeah. nothing less. Enough to be like, oh, I'm more curious than I was. Yes. <laughs> and I, I yeah, think it's just... well done, right? Yeah, you just get like the knuckles mm -hmm. coming out of the smoke, right? You don't see the tops, which you really don't see the the full extent of their body till way late, till in between James and James's yeah. scene and mine. Which is a tough scene, and and it's not until the next sequence when you see sort of the ends of their tentacles too. So I think they they leave enough ambiguity that you're like, I kind of know what they look like, but I kind of don't know what what's connecting at the top, what's connecting at the bottom. You but, know. So because I guess we're not going to get to this point in either of your scenes, I, I should ask. Were you guys surprised by the design of the aliens, or did you kind of know what they were going to look like going into the movie? I don't believe it was in the trailers. Yeah, because I right? remember being like, what? That's what they look like? And then it cuts away. Yeah, I feel like I have... There's some aspect of my memory that makes me think, like, when you first just get those those vertical lines with sort of the knuckles on them, that that was, like, part of a face. You know how, like, you know, in, in like, really crappy derivative, like, graphic art designs and bad tattoos you can have like the skull that looks like something else when it's upside down and like teeth can kind of be mm -hmm. something else like i i almost think i got that kind of ambiguity where you're like I'm, I'm looking at something completely different like like the 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 vertical lines were like a grill or a set of teeth or something like that you know yeah gotcha. I, in, in in my case i remember you know this is before i'd read the book when i saw the movie the first time or the story uh when i saw the movie for the first time uh just kind of thinking like um the less I I saw, the more I liked it, which I think is, is mm -hmm. how it goes with basically everything, um, especially when it's something um, extraterrestrial, right? There, um, mm -hmm. You know, signs did this in a big way where, like, less yeah. was more, and then there was too much, and you were kind of like, I don't know, I felt disconnected. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wouldn't say I felt disconnected from this. Um, um, if we have time, well, you know, I'm sure we can get into the scene where Louise actually enters uh, the heptapod side of the ship. And it, it, I find it to be kind of hard. It felt kind of video gamey, kind of display based, um, almost like vis visual exposition. Um, one, one in my, in my, in my perspective, one, one of the least sort of successful um, outlays of information in, in the movie. Yeah, mm. I, I will say that I did like the later reveal of the what the heptapods look like at a at a different scale because yeah. that's mm -hmm. it's almost like a secondary oh, first look or a big surprise of what they look like. And then it changes your perspective of them, even though it shouldn't really change anything about how you feel about them. It changed yeah, It's my a little bit like they came to the table. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the conversation was starting to happen. They leaned in a little bit and you got a little, and you're like, oh, wait, but this moves when they're making that weird noise. But then you learn that like the yeah. noise isn't actually part of the language. Maybe it's how they formulate the smoke or whatever it is. And, and yeah, I, I think all of that was fascinating. And, and, super creative um i just think that the challenge of showing the whole animal for this you know 
mental exercise is, is, is about as hard as it gets in, in this sort of a story. Well, the VFX team didn't have an easy task at, at like at their at hand there either. It's a tree, either. it's a squid, you know, yeah. what, what's going on? It's a, that's a tough scene. Yeah. Probably, probably the <laughs> toughest scene in the movie for me as well. I think so. Yeah, yeah. But um, that's pretty much all I wanted to cover in my scene. Tim, sorry, did you want to jump in there? No, I, th- I think we can hop to mine. I, I, there's always more to say, but I think we, uh, I think we should keep it moving. Let's do it. So, uh, yeah, my scene uh, uh, comes quite a bit later at 1.19.55 to 1.25.21. In this sequence, uh, Louise's developing grasp of the heptapod language prompts more and more recollections of her daughter, which take on a new dimension when she realizes she can actively affect the, and I'll put in quotations, memories, calling into question what they are and how she is seeing them. Um, so the the general sort of um, plot of, of this sequence, um, she has a... Again, what at that time we're probably still seeing as first-time viewers as a flashback. Uh, her daughter Hannah is uh, is a little bit older in terms of the, sc- the scale of her life. She's asking her a vocabulary question, something when both sides get something. It's an equal exchange. Uh, what's this term for that thing, like a, like a technical term? Where we make a deal and we both get something out of it. Uh, compromise. No... Like, it's a competition, mm-hmm. but both sides end up happy. Like a win-win. More science than that. If you want science, call your father. Louise is unable to come up with an answer as to what word her daughter's trying to get her, her, her finger on. She suggests that she ask her dad instead, um, which provides more context, I think, about Louise's marriage, which you assume is in the past and fell apart, and also hinting that her father is a scientist because the daughter says it's something more sciencey than that, and she just sort of throws it off with that sort of tenor that you can get about sort of um, divorced families, something like that, I think. Um, the sequence uh, then leaves that, again, memory for about three to four minutes, um, and you jump to where... Uh, this so this is after the heptapods have given that big chunk of uh, of logograms, and it's where Ian is determined that it's one of twelve. They argue with Weber and um, again Stuhlbarg's character's name, the CIA agent Halpern. Halpern. Yeah, Halpern. They're arguing about what to do with the fact that they have one of twelve. What does it mean? Are they competing with the other eleven people or nations that were given this language? Are they supposed to work together? Etc. And then it's in the course of this, um, Ian Donnelly brings up the idea of a non-zero-sum game. A trade? It's a non-zero-sum game. And Louise realizes what word her daughter was or will be looking for, and then she jumps back into that memory and gives it to her. Non-zero-sum game. That's it. Yeah. Thanks. And it's cut in very succinctly. Yeah. You see it as a direct um, action and reaction, as a course of events, and it's really it starts it you you at the same time as Louise figure out what is happening to her brain, in the fact that it isn't just these memories being pushed up to the surface, which is what it's felt like so far, because she was able to take information from the present, and put it into this other space. Um, I think the scene is very powerful because it balances both the overall plot of Louise and her daughter Hannah and what we're learning about when that happens and why it's important to her as well as the immediate plot concerns of communicating with Abbott and Costello after they've raised their ship after the bombing because Louise immediately uses this ability 
to look forward and see that, oh, if she walks outside, she can get in this little travel pod that will take her up to the shell. So she learns this ability and then immediately uses the ability for, for the good of the plot itself, while also at the same time you learn more about her daughter and you, you learn more about what's happening to Louise. It's kind of like a discovering of the superpowers kind of moment. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I also think what's interesting is is for this scene, what hit me the hardest was it makes it clear that um, it, it's about your ability. It's, it's not so much that she can call up a certain time. It's that her brain is thinking in both. Mm-hmm. So the, the a question from well in the future is answered in the past, and she's able to snap back to that time and, and provide the zero-sum game. And I think it's it's one of those things where, yeah, it, it is kind of the progression of the superpower, um, but it's mm-hmm. told in such a subtle sort of way, um, you know, in, in keeping with, with what we've talked about with the film so far. Uh, I, I do think that's what struck me was just that uh, a, as they start to show this power, it's not something that is like. Um, we'll, we'll get to some questions when we get to my scene because I have mm. I have some questions yeah. about the metric of of how this um, mm-hmm. this ability to see. You know, they describe it as being a sentence written from the front and the end with two mm-hmm. hands, and you have to be able to see all the spaces and everything between. I, I think it's more complicated than that. I think that's a that's a nice way of explaining it. And maybe I, I believe that might have been Ian explaining it to you know the military people or something like that. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I think I think this is a fantastic scene. Definitely one I would that was in the running uh, for myself. And uh, and and I really love the way that they're able to show that it's not just um, reflexive. It's not just like she gets hit with a memory uh, that's actually like a premonition. Um, it's a little bit mm-hmm. more um, a muscle that she's developing by learning more of their language, which I I, I thought was awesome. Yeah, I think you see it happen to her passively in this one, and then in your scene, we'll see her actively harness it, it, right? Um, And, I mean, we don't have to go too in-depth on a lot of the production and things in this this scene because there's so much we talked about already with Taze. The main reason I love this scene is because I think it does something extremely, like, like entirely unique i'd say in in terms of movies um because i want i want to talk about just how movies are uh, the way that they inter- they they uh, depict and use time is entirely unique to the art form and we we talked about this in previous episodes today about stories that can only be told as movies they're things that do not work as a story or as a radio player or, or a stage play or whatever and i think it's important to note um the Russian filmmaker, foundational filmmaker Tarkovsky, spoke a lot about this. He has a he has a book called Sculpting in Time, and he's given a great uh, like one hour talk on his film influences and why he thinks film is unique. It's linked, but in it, I just want to pull a quote from him there, where he says, "The question that filmmakers must ask themselves is what distinguishes cinema from other arts. To me, cinema is unique in its dimension of time. This doesn't mean it develops in time." So do music, theater, and ballet. I mean time in the literal sense. What is a frame, the interval between action and cut? Film fixes reality in a sense of time. It's a way of conserving time, and no other art form can fix and stop time like this. And I think your screenwriter, I think Denny, they're aware that the adaptation that they pulled from Ted Chiang's work is something that can only operate here. And I think it's best exemplified in this scene where... Uh, how to, how to put this generally when you see one shot go into another shot especially when they're not say right from the same scene 
um, you understand that the movie is being put together for the audience's perspective. So you are you need information from a flashback from a per, from a person's history. So they call it a flashback, and we know that we're we have this language established. This movie um, editing like that is an exact representation of the way that Louise is experiencing is perceiving her existence which I think is something that I don't think has happened in any other movie. I think it's directly using something that we take for granted as a way that the movie has to operate and conventionally does operate in, in order to give us information. This is actually the way that Louise is seeing her life. And I think that's an extraordinary thing that they achieved. And I think it's also extraordinary that you can watch that sequence and just see it for the plot, and that's fine. You're just sort of understanding how Louise's perception is changing, and you're understanding that she can use this now to speak to Abbott Costello after the attack. Yep. But there's this incredible meta layer to it that I, I find very special every time I watch it. That's my, my sermon's done. <laughs> well done, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I Just going back to Tarkovsky for a second, I really think that, I, like I don't know this for a fact, but I'd be very surprised if Villeneuve wasn't very heavily influenced by some of his science fiction films, like Solaris. Mm-hmm. And what he said about the use of timing in film is, I think, spot on as well. Um, and then connecting to your point about how Louise's life is now almost depicted as an editor controls the images of a film, it adds an extra textual layer for like how Villeneuve perceives his own films now in my mind a bit. But um, actually, you know what? I'm going to end my point there because I'm gonna, just going to keep rambling. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's easy, like, with any movie that has time travel, it's easy. It just We can just recursively talk about the same things in different words and stuff like that. That's why I wanted to point out this scene. I think it's the best example of what's going on here. I think in in one small way, Villeneuve is making a movie about the way that we make movies and about the language of cinema. Again, we way back in, in Blade Runner, even on Sandy, we talked about how, like, he wants to create an experience that is big C cinema, yeah. cinematic something is uniquely in this art form. And I, I just, I pick this scene because it's a great expression of, of how that's taking place and how you couldn't do this in any other art form or, or medium. Yeah. It is really cool how you watch her reaction to this process happening in her inner brain. And it's almost just instinctual. Okay. Now I'm going to walk outside. I'm not going to worry about what's happening in this room. Cause I already know what's going to happen outside. And yeah. you, it's like the, those opening moments of her figuring it out are like just the naturalism of it, I think is what stands out to me most about the presentation. Mm-hmm. Which absolutely. And, yeah. It, it, it fires like a fugue state for the first couple of times. Like, like almost like she's not, she has enough information to know what, what's going on, but she can't see how, what the connective tissue is. It's, it's, it's like I said, it's interesting to see the the sort of muscle of this, skill set i guess it's almost a, it's not physical skill set yeah. but to watch it develop is is fascinating and and then to see it pay off in the in the last uh in in the scene that i picked is uh, is super fun i think big big moment for the yeah. audience yeah well it's like you know you're watching the difference between her and where she's at and the heptapods because you get the idea that the heptapods clearly they they're so well established it's their language that they just live in this super state mm-hmm. where they know what they're doing at all times and you get to see her go from point A to point B, where she's slowly understanding this is how I can use it and being shocked by information that's given to her sometimes. You're going to bring it up in your scene in just a minute, James. Some of the things where like, she's like finding out things about herself, mm-hmm. um, I, which I think I think it, it's, it's a very um, 
like rewarding thing to watch happen and it's very palpable again it's very locked in her perspective because yeah, i think you realize this the same time she does they very carefully meted metered out this information uh that it all it all hits right in this scene absolutely yeah, good pick tim yeah solid yeah absolutely and i mean it lead, leads we we've got what the sequence that we already touched on the one where she goes to the heptapod side mm-hmm um is is next and then james your scene follows that. it does yeah so uh one one hour thirty three fourteen to one forty three thirty nine. i call it the weapon in use and uh and it, it, she leaves this experience where she was given essentially granted actual time in front of costello um poor abbott is in death process uh you know godspeed there's a lot of there's a lot of weight and emotion to that for just being um subtitles yeah no i agree right <laughs> like i i'm kind of also laughing. the first time we've seen subtitles for there because now that she can read it you're allowed to understand it from her perspective right yeah. but that's outside of my scene i we got we got we got we got we got <laughs> she leaves goes outside um they they pick her up uh, in a truck or whatever and then as soon as she's with renner she uh kind of has this vision of her daughter i would say her daughter is seven or eight and um, and it's years into the future after their divorce or the eventual divorce with Ian. Um, once he knows what will happen to their daughter, and of course she knows now in in some metric. And then it cuts back to present day. She says, "I I realized why my husband left me." Ian, obviously not being able to speak the language, goes, uh, "You know, you were married." Which of course all of this mm. is in the future. It's a clever thing that takes a moment uh, to hand out. And and the scene takes data from the entire film. But and then uses the new framework of this language to show you how it works and, and to give you to establish the finalized timeline to disconnect her from the morning that is kind of the opening flashback, which is actually a flash forward to these sweet moments with her daughter, to her daughter realizing that there's stuff outside of her control, the the reality of her existence, this disease or whatever, and 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 the way that her father and her mother are going to deal with it. You, you get this whole thing where she can see time as the sort of flat circle that I joked about earlier with her daughter's name, even being a palindrome is Hannah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she makes it back to the the screen that encapsulates the entire language, realizes she can read it. And, and then you see the very quickly, the, this sort of gift really take off. Um, they're, they're shutting everything down, communication with China and, and, and other, other sites have fallen apart. No confirmation, they are offline. They, they even go as far as, it's a little on the nose, but they, they go as far as taking it all the way to the helicopter. And Ian says, I'm, I'm going to find out where we're going, whereas Louise can literally see where everything is going at this mm-hmm. point. And, and yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And it's, of course, it, being this movie, it's there's helicopter noises and jets and the rest of it happening in the background. So it feels kind of compressed, which is nice. Um, we, we see the, the sort of root of the two-way ability of this zero-sum game, um, but the, the, where, where we really get something, where we get the prestige, the final delight, is at this party, which is flash-forwarded um, 18 months uh, in the, into the future, where uh, she's at a party. kind of seems like she doesn't know why she's there, and, and I'll get to this point if we have some time, but she's at a party. Um, she turns around, and, and this general is there, General saying. And uh, basically, he hands her the information she needs to be able to call him in the past, deliver a message which Villeneuve would have preferred had stayed private, is my understanding. And uh, someone else involved with the film decided that didn't matter and, and shared it. Yeah. And, and that's I, I, I don't want to give away the absolute you know, two core minutes of the, the metric of this film. So go ahead and watch it if, 
if you haven't, but the 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 movie hinges on these two things happening in simultaneous array, and they're layered back and forth in what I think is essentially the perfect manner. I'm, I don't know how they, I don't know how much work they did to to get to that, um, but mm-hmm. it, it shows these two timelines caught on top of each other, and we lose the whole kind of like o- overdone wedding video bokeh of of a mm-hmm. hand touching a hand of of maximus's hand going through the the weeds in in the elysium <laughs> the the wheat or whatever like it, it's yeah, that yeah. short you know that that <laughs> ultra short depth of field which like i think they were super smart to do it because it has that fuzziness of waking up somewhere between being awake and in a dream but it's gone here because she's awake she's awake in every timeline she exists yes mentally outside of the scope of time which is a fantastic sentence to even consider and um and so you see you see the the result of zhang having given her a phone number she calls him in the current time it has an effect and then back and forth and and it's kind of recursive and then you have you have this kind of descaling of events and then um to my best knowledge I, i did i did my best with the uh translation here he says thank you and that ends he ends that scene yeah um and uh i i think this is um like like i said it it kind of has that it has that run where like your two scenes built to make this scene as impactful as it can be and there's even Mm -hmm. some fat in this scene you don't need all of it you don't need um you don't necessarily need to see as much they showed you i think when you add in the music and you add in um, her asking uh, Ian if he trusts her and all that kind of stuff. It's all valuable. It's all little building little pebbles into a bigger wall. But the main footstones of that wall are already there. And, and I think the scene comes out beautifully. I love it. Yeah, one thing, a small shout out, one thing that may not have been necessary, but I'm glad they left it in, is Stolbarg as Halpern when they point out that she's stolen his satellite yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah, it's he, great. He gets like six seconds to play like unaware yeah. and then embarrassed and he he kills her. So like it's such yeah, a good she steals the phone <laughs> somebody there they're setting down and they go sir there's a, a call to china happening from within the base right the call is happening from in the house we trace the call it's coming from inside the house you hear me and uh and and he goes whose phone is it? and there's a, like a long yeah. pause and then a new shot it's your phone sir search base camp now kind of yeah. behind him and the guy at the computer and he goes it's your phone sir and you go yeah, like, and he kind of like checks his pockets <laughs> and looks around and then, and then yeah. uh, and then very sort of like embarrassedly just he's like he's like search base camp like come yep. on let's, let's take care of this, this but um, yeah I, I think like i said i, I think it's a great scene um i actually it's it's fun because it, it, it's not a scene that i think we have to go on for a long time about because it it relies so heavily on the two scenes that you guys picked I did want to say that I like that this is kind of more of a, I don't know, I don't want to say a normal movie, but like a like the average movie kind of scene where you have like the the doofy kind of antagonist kind of have his mistake moment, mm-hmm. and then you have like yeah. it's it's humorous and it's like actually just not part of the necessary storyline. It's almost just yeah. all for flavor at this point and for a bit of mm-hmm. fun. And this movie doesn't have a lot of fun scenes. So yep. like that moment really does stand out, and I saw it in your notes and the point that Tim just mentioned. Uh, I think that's one of the, f- it is the funniest part yeah. of the film. Stuhlbarg kills it, and I th- it's just a it's a yeah. unnecessary moment that I really like and appreciate. And I think it's an underlining yeah. on cerebrally where she is. Mm-hmm. 
She yeah. just walked by, I, grabbed the phone, turned out to be his, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's a whole thing. Yeah, no, like, I, I, I think you're right. Like, it's it's a remarkably conventional sequence in so many ways. Like, it's it's this critical, like, point. It's it's um it's the highest point of tension. You have people with, with guns drawn on her and Ian. Um, time is running out. There's all these tensions to it. And I think one of the brilliant strokes of it is time Oz, uh performance yes yeah it's yeah. such a high stress powerful like everything you're you're tense in every way and he just sort of floats in and you're like you've heard about general shang the whole movie yeah. being this incendiary stubborn presence and time playing general shang is so calm mm-hmm. 18 months ago you did something remarkable Something not even my superior has done. What's that? You changed my mind. And warm to delicate. her. And I love like, yeah, very delicate. And, and he just tells her exactly what he needs to, she needs to know. And I, I really love what he and does. And if it here. wasn't for the fact that he said, I don't understand how your brain works, but I would mm-hmm. think he had figured out, he had also gotten the gift. Because he's yeah, so calm, he's not rushed. He's not saying, "Look at this," and then call, and then do do everything. Like he's just yeah, like, yeah. What? "The world is, is fine." Is I already know it's good because I can yeah. see the future. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, like yeah. his presence would almost speak to me. And I know that's not the case because it's it's in the dialogue that he um he says that. I I do have a a, a question for you guys that I'm I'm just I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. Is when when we're talking in a lin and I understand that the skill set is not is to make time no longer linear, but in linearity. Is their experience transferable? Right? So this is a question for the audience as well, because I genuinely don't know and and I didn't want like a you know, a think piece from some movie mm-hmm. site on it necessarily. But like in yeah. the chat with her daughter at the top of my scene, it seems yeah. like in that moment she knows all of it. She knows that Ian left and why, she knows that there's a disease, she knows that she knows that she's the that her gift, that her knowledge is the reason for all of this stuff. But then mm-hmm. when she doesn't know what day it is she doesn't know it's sunday so it almost feels like are are you kind of stepping into a body that exists there and you get some data but not all of it i don't know and then at the party she seems to be operating in the current day perspective this is mm-hmm. getting into that um uh what was tim what was that uh what was that movie where they did the time travel the two guys shame not shame primer, primer thank you just getting yeah. into the primerness <laughs> yeah, of yeah. it all, yeah, yeah. Um, which which I enjoy, I suppose. But it, it's that eighteen where she doesn't seem to know that she called him. He has to tell her that. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, if she had that gift, it would have been autonomic. I guess I don't really know. I, yeah. I, maybe it doesn't matter. I don't want to pick the my, picking the film apart is not going to be fun. Yeah. That was just the only thing in that ten twelve minutes that that stuck out to me where I was going like, but she seems to know a lot about how bad things go for her daughter, but very little about. <laughs> what um general Mm -hmm. zhang needs from her yeah i i think like there's there's two things that that come to mind when i try to tackle that question um which is a super interesting one number one being that like in most time travel things i just try to follow what's the leading edge right where like when someone goes back it's still the future person going back i think the complicated part about this view of time is that there will be multiple leading edges right so shang was the the impetus for that and it went backwards Whereas the non-zero sum was was in the other direction, and same with later when like she she realizes she can go in the future and read her own book mm-hmm. that she wrote decoding the language. I think the easy answer to this is that she 
she and presumably humans will never occupy the heptapod space of like mastery of like born with it. So she's operating in this. She's fluent, but she's not a born speaker. So you have these weird areas of uncertainty and stuff like that. I think that explains away that in a, a bit of a lazy way, but I also think it's, it's, it's reasonable. Yeah. My, my really silly guess is that, uh, in the future, Zhang read her book, became fluent, yeah, <laughs> and then went back like a like a chill dude and just like dropped some knowledge on her. Oh, at the party. so him him saying I don't pretend to know how your brain works is him more saying like I don't know how you learned he, this without the book. The, like right? the party, the party yeah. was a moment in which their yeah. two circles like definably overlapped. But yeah. I don't think that's accurate. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a fun idea. <laughs> I I saw it as like an involuntary response, like an involuntary muscle, like triggering her brain. Mm-hmm. She like kind of knows what she's looking for when she's like trying to find that answer when she's on the phone, and she's like, "Okay, what did I say next? What did I say next?" I think she knows that the information exists, and she's like kind of like racking. It's like a Mad Libs racking the mm-hmm. <laughs> the flattened timeline of like everything mm-hmm, to sure. figure out what point she needs to get to to find that information it's almost like finding the right file cabinet or something right i could see that i, I, yeah. I yeah, my... it's fine i don't think it hurts the movie in any way it's just something that struck me in, in watching that scene carefully i think it's also a very funny line at this point of like extreme tension when the guns are all on her and then general shang's like i would never forget what you said and it's so slow like okay just, just spit it out man get to the but that's because we're 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 stuck in our linear time and we're like we need to know know. and it's like they both like no i already know it's fine right i love and again it it's such whether it was direction whether it was time that came up with it or likely a little bit of both but the idea that he wouldn't be more rushed or more intent on doing this that he'd have this serenity that comes with knowing everything's going to be okay Same, same for the heptapods right they yeah. knew they had 3,000 years. They're probably ahead of schedule. Uh, poor, poor Abbott, notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah. But again, Abbott would have seen yeah. that coming. Yeah, That's true. the other thing. Like yeah. the, my, other, my other thought was always like, so in a human thing, again, in humans adopting this language, is it a matter of their perspective consciousness, we'll call it, hopping around? I would imagine the heptapods just have an all-out awareness. They are not hopping around from one time in their body to another time mm. in their body they just start with it but they're ready for the again, bomb that's for sure all this yeah all of this is beyond yeah, then yeah, why do they disappear sure. um, at the end tim because they don't have to be there anymore I'm going to other planets hedge their I mean, bets yeah yeah someone else to help them in three thousand years <laughs> well, i do also just want to shout out i like louise's uh, tentacle earrings that she's wearing at the party oh yeah she's, she's got little <laughs> little diamond diamond heptapod yeah. earrings that are neat I like the little clay, the little clay one that her daughters made. Mm-hmm. That's a great reveal, yeah. though. Too, I think that's the first visual giveaway that that's in the future and not the past. It's the, I think it's well, it's that or the the. W- does that come just before or just after the bird, the drawing? Mm. Oh, it might of, be of just her. before. Well, I think because it's a little bit earlier where like her daughter's saying like I made this show. It's mummy and daddy talk yeah. to animals, yep. and there may have been like a canary in a cage in, in that yeah, drawing. Yeah, yeah. There's one on the wall that has it. Anyways, yeah. I just can't. Uh, mm-hmm. I, my apologies. That I is the, remember, it is uh, the which same. direction was. Yeah. Same scene. Well, it's hard to keep it all in order, yeah. right? Yeah. I guess it maybe kind, kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's my scene, and uh, I love it. I, I mean, I love a lot of what's in this movie. Um, and it's uh, it's kind of out of scope for me for a normal sci-fi film. I, you know, normally I would like a laser gun and a, and you know and 
a leather jacket and, and a lot of smoke on the streets and some weird noodles and that sort of stuff. But uh, I think this one does it really well. I like all aspects of varying science fiction. So I just want people to keep it fresh and keep coming with fresh ideas to it. And when you have amazing collaboration like this, whether it's like the original story to the screenplay to the direction of this adaptation, I think that this is like science fiction can touch on so many different parts of real life and this movie does something really mm -hmm. cool in talking about something that i think people feel needs to be action-based and action-centric yep. and it, yep. it takes it and does something very unique with it and i really appreciate this kind of perspective from a really smart filmmaker yeah, yeah that's it and that's how i've recommended this movie many times we watched it in our friends uh film club uh within the last season i think and it's just it's very easy to say like it's an alien movie. It's about first contact. It has nothing to do with uh, with guns. It's not one with guns, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great movie. I'm glad we were able to do a potluck on it. And, I mean, speaking of movies with guns, uh, we are, because this month we're doing alien movies. We're doing non-horror alien movies. We're just saving a full block of more Ridley Scott-based <laughs> stuff for another month. For sure. Um, so the vote, uh, which you... We probably already launched, but if not, uh, you're hearing about it now. We're voting on Starship Troopers, lots of guns, lots of aliens. Attack the Block, which I haven't seen in a while. Um, I don't know how many guns are in it, but it's definitely a more There's violent a alien encounter. For sure. E.T., which... Uh, Less guns. Which uh, is a little bit closer gun, to Arrival, keys I'd than say. Guns in that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, and Men in Black, oh, yeah. which uh, so I think guns. I think we got a real fun lineup lots of there. Guns. We'll see what everyone picks. Yeah, lots of different <laughs> guns, um, big ones and a little tiny one. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we can we can jump into our shoutouts nice and quickly. Tay, yours directly follows James's yeah. scene, so why yeah. don't you kick us off? I was actually really hoping I was I had to like watch it right before the podcast just to make sure it wasn't in James's scene because I just I think that this is a really cool way of depicting something that is very conventionally done throughout movies that depict the news and news coverage. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about it when we did Shin Godzilla too, about just unique ways of showing news mm -hmm. coverage. This is a really cool way. Mm -hmm. um, it's literally just like very simple cutouts. Like I could do this scene in five minutes if you had the footage, like just editing this together. Mm -hmm. Really easy. Um, it's like TV screens and they're just like all slowly fading away to being smaller. As the news breaks, I've been told we're going to cut yes, this report this to tell you breaking, breaking news now. China has called an emergency press conference. General Shang, commander in chief of the People's Liberation Army, has announced in an emergency press conference that China is standing down. Of General mm -hmm. Shang's uh, decision changing. So mm -hmm. there's all this imminent danger and uncertainty. Then it slowly transitions, and the news coverage slowly transitions into there's an announcement. Oh, and now it looks like General Zhang's military is backing off, that kind of thing. And it's just a really, mm -hmm. really simple sequence that I think accomplishes a lot and is unique visually. Like I said, it's just something conventionally mm -hmm. is really boring, and uh, they did a really good job at doing it. And this immediately follows James's scene, so it's it was pretty cool to include this. Yeah. Yeah, I like you get the full sort of unification of the world because it's all these different countries. Yes news feeds coming in and saying the same thing it, it's it's this nice little button to uh the the way that they solve the the critical issue in james's scene um my scene uh, i just want to quickly shout out and this is something again we mentioned that this movie rewards multiple viewings this is something i just picked up this time writing my notes around an hour in the movie there's a scene that i think you could call a palindrome itself or, or a little a little exchange where uh, louise wakes up from uh, her the sort of nightmare sequence, Colonel Weber had been knocking on her door, and 
the the lines themselves can be read in both directions in terms of their exchange, which I think might be a little joke, or maybe I'm just maybe I'm just reading it too too far. But he says, "Did you sleep?" She says, "A little." He says, "Do you know Mandarin?" And then it hard cuts to the next sequence where she has to translate some of the stuff that they overheard from uh, Shang's troops. Uh, and I, I think that's a fun little in joke. The scene itself, it could be, "Do you know Mandarin?" A little. Did you sleep? And then hard cut. <laughs> um, so it it runs both ways. Yeah. Um, who knows if they did that on purpose or if I'm I don't think I could give Denny too much credit so I'll 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 go ahead and say they they, they that was intentional uh James what do you got for a show I've got the uh, the scene where Colonel Weber comes to uh Louise's office right kind of right at the top you know it, it kind of starts mm-hmm. to break down the ambiguity of the film it's at 1047 like at her house time right? signature uh at her office no it's her office oh, okay. In the in the university. At the university, so she comes, and that's where they have that discussion about the translation of the meaning of that word in Farsi, and uh, and and I I love this scene because this is something that is in every Michael Bay movie. That's in you know it's in so many films where mm-hmm. you come enlisting an expert. Yeah, exactly, enlisting an expert, yeah. and they give you a challenge of some sort, and there's a disparity in expectations. Um, you know, sometimes that expert is a is a could be a race car driver, could be a mercenary, could be a an oil drilling person, and you know, oil rig folks. Um, <laughs> in, in this case, it's it, she's a linguist, and, and and she's given very little data, and he won't respond to her questions or even really respect the fact that she's really good, and she's very dismissive of the fact that like your problems, your problem to a certain extent, and and on the way out, yeah. she kind of gives him this tag like, Colonel, you mentioned Berkeley. Are you? going to ask Danvers next? Maybe. Before you commit to him, ask him the Sanskrit word for war and its translation. You're going to see this other person ask them this, and and that's mm-hmm. kind of what seals the fate for, for the rest of the film, which I, I, I like these scenes, and I think that they did it in the most arrival way possible, which is why I, I wanted to give it a shout out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the exchange. You made quick work of those uh, insurgent videos. You made quick work of those insurgents really just gives you both the characters mm-hmm. right away Real quick. and that and i and i said earlier that i think he does his best work at the beginning i think his kind of dismissiveness and like his begrudging even to be there to ask for her help really comes through without it just being right in the yeah. dialogue just so like i think it takes the full course of the movie for him to even see the the how worthwhile it is to start from a linguist point of yeah, view. yeah i really like his impatience in that scene it just comes off as uh mm-hmm less professional than you're used to seeing someone who's you know got the that kind of ranking and yeah. uh, i like that it felt like i only have five minutes to persuade you and then i'm on to the next person so let's get this done and i'm going to make my decision really quick and i'm going to get out of here and uh mm-hmm. the rushed nature of that scene makes the whole incident of like the aliens landing uh that much more pressing and it, you kind of feel that early in the film at that moment so i, I thought it was a really fitting tone Mm-hmm. And then uh, just to wrap it up, uh, James, what's your what's your recommendation for this uh, this pot? Uh, mine is to watch another sci-fi movie that I like that is um, mm-hmm. weirder and maybe hard, harder than this one. Yeah. It's, it has an alien element, of course, but it's also about um, the alien in you, the 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 way that um, lies and, and mistrust and, and stuff kind of breeds a disconnection that's not dissimilar to an interloper of some sort. And that's Alex Gardland's Annihilation. It's a movie that I've seen 
many, many times. Really, really love. I'm excited <laughs> to see Men uh, sometime in the future uh, when it comes out. Right on. And uh, But Annihilation is an incredible cast, um, an amazing uh, piece of use of, of one piece of music throughout the film. I mean, there's more than one piece mm -hmm. of music in the film, but a core piece of music is used throughout. Um, a really defined aesthetic. Uh, throughout uh, an art direction and then just a lot of really unsettling visuals which I'm on board for yeah yeah it's a great again not unconventional uh, alien movie uh, so if you like if you like Arrival they're not the same at all but it's another it's another flavor of that thing uh, something that can't be defeated with guns Alec Garland is one of the best filmmakers going right now so definitely try and support his work okay so and for uh I guess my science fiction recommendation for this week, uh, I'm going back. I think I'm going to pick the oldest recommendation that I've done yet. Um, it's from a director who I love as well. Uh, this movie is called Life Force, and it is Life a Force. wonderful horror science fiction film mm -hmm. um, by... Yeah, you're holding up a steel yes, book there. I am a, a diehard <laughs> fan of this movie. It's so weird, and it's bonkers, and at times it's absolutely uh ridiculous in terms of what it's showing you visually but um it's also written by dan o'bannon and directed by toby hooper who is uh, the director of texas chainsaw massacre amongst many other great mm -hmm. horror films so you're in good hands the cast is also excellent and it's really unpredictable movie it, it it's wild and it goes all over the place so i highly recommend just from like a interest perspective alone if you like science fiction You'll probably get a kick out of this movie. So 1985's Life Force is my pick. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, between Hooper and O'Bannon. So O'Bannon wrote or helped conceptualize Alien yes. itself. Yes. Um, and uh, he also he did Dark Star with uh, Carpenter. <laughs> and he's O'Bannon's had a hand in a lot of stuff. He's a very prolific guy. So that no, that's a, it's a great one to consider when you're looking for other Alien movies to watch. And uh, my recommendation is Captive State, uh, which is just from 2019, not too long ago, directed by Rupert Wyatt. Um, it is an undoubtedly flawed movie. I'm going to tell you that right off the bat. There are things that don't work about it. Um, but the middle third almost operates like its own short film. It's largely without dialogue. It's just about people achieving this goal. It's super well edited, extremely well directed. The, some of the very sparse effects are really good. I like the way the aliens are designed in this movie. It's an $8.8 million budget, and I think they very wisely used it for very specific effects. Uh, you've got John Goodman in this movie. Machine Gun Kelly, oddly enough. Um, it, it's got an interesting cast, and again, it's not this flawless movie, but I mean, that middle chunk alone, I'm a huge fan of. So I, I'd recommend it if you didn't catch it. In and Cameron from Ferris, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. When Cameron was in Egypt's land Let my Cameron go Yes, that's true. Alan Alan, what's his name? He was in Speed as well. Yeah, Cameron. <laughs> Uh, what's his name? Alan Ruck. Alan you won't Ruck. catch me saying his real name no. on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are our recommendations. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's what we got for you this week. That's a good recommendation, Tim. I have never seen this movie. Uh, and I remember when it came out, but I honestly had forgotten about it already. So thanks for putting that back on the yeah. old radar. Yeah, of course. 
And, and yeah, that'll do it for the episode today. Thanks so much for coming back for another potluck, James. Really appreciate Guys, it. Guys, I couldn't be more thrilled to be on Team 10 here. Every 10, <laughs> maybe I'll see you in 10 more. Yeah. Uh, but I, for real, I love this movie, just like a, just like the last two we chatted about. And it's an absolute thrill to see you guys hit 30 and to be part of it Thanks, in, in some way. So if, if there's any way I can support, if we're going to do a giveaway, let me know. Um, I'm, I'm happy to chip in for oh, a, yeah. a good old copy of Arrival for one of the listeners. Uh, but until then, uh, you know, keep keep going and and I'm listening. I've been really enjoying the uh, the last several ones for sure. I did just want to say while you're with us, James, that uh, I really enjoyed your last film club episode. You you touched on well, actually I think it was Jason who touched on one of my top three favorite films of all time, and I'm gonna leave that hanging there because I don't want to say oh, what it is okay. in case we do it. But yeah, <laughs> no. I I have a distinct top three. Yeah, and I love it. Jason okay. uh, Jason nailed well, it. I'm glad I'm glad we I'm glad we hit it in some way. You did. Fantastic, guys. Well, thanks so much. Eh? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, James. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, as always, share the episodes. Give us a review if you're with us on Apple Podcasts. And uh, we'll uh, we'll catch you with James back here in 10 more episodes. But we'll have some great stuff for you in the meantime. All right. Watch all the good stuff. Skip the bad stuff. <laughs> catch you later. Skip Avatar. Bye. Bye.